For the next few weeks, we will be departing from our studying Luke's gospel uh, for a series that we're calling Ultimate Questions, where we're going to take some of life's big questions and uh, seek to give them a, a thoughtful but biblical answer. And there's really a twofold uh, purpose for why we're going to engage in this series. Number one, we want to address some of those very common, very big questions that we all face, Christians and non-Christians alike. And, and hoping especially uh, that those in our community who are not Christians, who are skeptics about some of these Christian claims, might come and hear some accessible, uh, relevant, and Lord willing persuasive answers to these questions. But then second, the aim for this series is to teach believers. To teach believers how to think deeply and biblically about these questions so that you'll be equipped to go into this world, to go into conversations with lost people who don't share your worldview, your commitments to God's word and commitments to Jesus so that you'd be equipped to give thoughtful answers yourselves. And to be able to give a good testimony of the grace of Christ to anybody who asks you these kinds of questions. Because if you are interacting with people who aren't Christians, these questions are going to come up at some point. They may not come up directly in this way. You may not be sitting across the, uh, the table with somebody in a meeting. Hey, what's the meaning of life? You know, It may not come out that way, but it'll come out in some other way. You'll see some tragedy on the TV. Or there'll be some kind of scandal in the paper. Or there'll be some tragedy in someone's life. And then the big questions are going to come up. And you're going to have opportunities to, to give people hope. And so this is, this is one of the aims of this series. It's one thing to know what you believe. It's another to know why you believe it. And to be able to articulate those reasons to somebody else. That's what we want to be able to do as a church. We want to know what we believe. We want to know why we believe it. And we want to be able to give thoughtful, reasonable articulation to the faith that we bank everything on. And so this morning, what I simply want to do is take a few minutes and show you from here in First Peter how that's exactly what God expects of you as a Christian. So if you're not there already, go to... 1 Peter 3, and before we come to this uh, passage, let's come before the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. So Jesus, this begins with set apart, sanctified, regard, honor you as uh, the holy Lord that you are. And so we do that even as we come to hear you speak to us. You are the Lord. And we bow the knee of our hearts now as you speak. And we pray in your name. Amen. So I want to focus mainly on verse 15. You'll see it there in the text. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Uh, and you, depending on your translation, the ESV actually, there's, there's a few different um, updates to the ESV. There was a, uh, the, when the ESV first came out in the early 2000s. That sounds weird to say, the early 2000s. But I guess we're that far along, 17 years ago since the millennium started. So the early 2000s and then the updates that have happened. And they, they've changed uh, verse 15 just a bit, just a translational change. So if you're 
yours says honor Christ or regard Christ, we're talking about the same verse here. Okay. So, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And I want to answer three questions. Three questions uh, from this verse. Number one, what? Number two, who? And number three, how? All right, that's an easy outline. What, who, and how? So let's start with the first. What is Peter calling Christians to do here? The key word in verse 15 that clues us in uh, to what Peter's getting at is the word defense. See that word, defense? It's the Greek word apologia, from which we get the English word that Christians use often, the word apologetics. Have you heard that word before, apologetics? doesn't mean I'm sorry, all right? When Christians do apologetics, they're not going around apologizing for this and that. It doesn't mean to say I'm sorry. It means to give a defense, a reasoned defense for the faith of the gospel. So apologia, the Greek word, was a legal term. It was a term that referred to the defense that somebody would give in a courtroom setting. So a good example of this is found in Acts 25. If you want to turn there, you can, or I'll just read it to you. Remember Acts 25, Paul's going to be brought before King Agrippa, and introducing Paul and his imprisonment is Festus, and he's explaining to King Agrippa the situation that concerns Paul's being there. And beginning in verse 14, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix, And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused uh, meet the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. The defense, the apologia. Same word that we find here in 1 Peter 3. So you get the, you get the courtroom scenario there. Paul has a charge laid against him, and before he gets condemned, he has a chance to give a defense, to take a stand, and to give reasons for his innocence. So that's the term Peter here is applying to Christians. I like how one commentator put it. He put it like this. Peter sees his readers as being on trial Every day as they live for Christ in a pagan society. That's what Peter's getting at. And I I think the commentator's right when he says every day because that's what Peter says here. Look, look down. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. As Christians go in and out among their non-Christian society, and as they do it in a distinctively Christian manner, They're bound to get questions. They're going to get questions from people who look at their life, listen to them talk, who observe their outlook on the world and world events and things that go on in their life. The things that they say, things they don't say, the things that they do and the things that they don't do stand out. And as onlookers who aren't Christians, who don't share the worldview commitments that that play out in a life lived under the banner of Jesus as Lord, as they see that, they're going to be inquisitive. They're going to ask questions about it. It may be a genuine 
question. It may be antagonistic. But we need to always, as Christians, be ready to give a, a defense to anybody like that who asks us why we do and say and think the way that we do. And Peter says that we as Christians need to be able to give an apologia, an apologia, a defense. Now, what does that entail? Well, suppose that you were accused of a crime that you didn't commit. Okay? Suppose you're, you're the Apostle Paul, or modern-day equivalent, and you're accused of a crime that you didn't commit. What do you do? You hire an attorney, right? You want to hire a good attorney, an attorney who's going to give you a good defense. And then at the beginning of the uh, trial, you know, his opening argument goes something like this. Okay, imagine sitting in the courtroom and your defense attorney, all right, your life hangs in the balance here on how well he reasons on your behalf. Begins like this. He says, I know my client has been accused of this crime, but frankly, that's just your opinion. And I can tell you from my own personal experience with the defendant that he's definitely not the criminal type. I mean, I've got personal experience with this guy. I can vouch for him. Plus, I know he's innocent. You know why? Because he told me he was. The defense rests. You probably would not keep that attorney, right? I mean, that's worse than the stuttering lawyer in My Cousin Vinny. Have you seen that movie? You know, this, he can't make a good case for anything. He thinks he's got one guy on the hook because he didn't have his glasses on when he saw it. it turns out they were reading glasses, right? And so his whole case is blown. He couldn't make a good argument for Ralph Macchio and his brother. I don't know what his brother's name is in that movie, but we know Ralph Macchio because of Karate Kid. Um, so they canned him, right? They got rid of that lawyer, and they got a better lawyer because that lawyer couldn't make a defense, couldn't give good reasons, right? Their life was dependent upon this man's ability to give good reasons and get them off the hook to show their innocence. You would have canned him too. You would have gotten a new lawyer. An apologia is a well-reasoned defense of something or someone. It's not just, well, that's my opinion. It's not just an opinion. Opinions are a dime a dozen. Everybody's got an opinion. What makes your opinion better than anybody else's opinion? Right? It's not just, oh, that's my opinion. It's not just a, a mere appeal to personal experience. I'm not, I'm not, getting down on personal experience. There's a place for that. But if we merely appeal to personal experience, that's not going to be persuasive. That's not a good argument. You know why? Because somebody else is going to have an equally personal experience of something completely different. What makes your personal experience better or more true than another personal experience? It's not an opinion. It's not a personal experience. It entails giving good reasons. Good reasons for your Christian faith. Like that's, and that's what Peter says. Look back. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. The word reason there is the Greek word logos, where we get the word logic. To get a logical, rational, well thought out, stands up to scrutiny, reason for the hope that's within you. It's, it's rational. It's well argued as we account for our faith. So that's what Peter's talking about here. Now, let's look at the who. To whom is he talking? Well, I'll tell you how many Christians would answer that question. 
They would say that giving good reasons for the Christian faith, well-argued account of what they believe, that's the job of the professionals, right? The, the Christian apologists who go to seminary and get a PhD and write books defending the faith. It's for those people. Or maybe, maybe it's for the pastors who have a seminary training or have some kind of Bible training. That's who is supposed to give the defense for Christianity. I'm just a regular, everyday Christian. That's not something I'm able to do. It's not something God expects me to do. It's for those who have the training, the gifting, the intelligence, the experience. This is above my pay grade. That's why God put those other people in the church. That's how a lot of Christians answer that. And so they live life never expecting to engage the lost in thoughtful, meaningful conversations about ultimate things. When they get the questions, they skirt them. Or they use the, well, that's just my opinion. And this is just my personal faith. You may have a different personal faith. That's just my personal faith. And so they skirt the responsibility of giving good reasons for the hope that's in them. Because they don't own the responsibility that each and every Christian has. Peter will have nothing of that. He's not writing this to the so-called professionals. right? He's not limiting the scope of these instructions here just to the pastors or to some special group of exceptionally smart, exceptionally gifted people. He is writing to every Christian. In fact, go back to verse 8 when he starts this section and look at how he begins. Finally, then underline it in your Bible if you like. All of you. Who's the all of you? Well, if you go back to the very beginning of First Peter, you notice that Peter's writing to the elect. Hope you're one of those, right? You want to get out of that group? To get out of this responsibility? I hope not. The elect refers to every Christian, whether they believe in election or not, by the way. Every Christian is being addressed here. Peter is writing this to you. And he is saying, you have this responsibility to give an apologia for your faith. So don't jump out of this. Don't jump out of having unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and tender heart and humble mind and all these other things that he gives you. Don't, don't take all of those and then try to get out when he comes to your responsibility to give an apologetic. Stick with him. He leads you right into this and he's saying this is what God has enabled you to do, equipped you to do, and calls you to do. It's not limited to pastors. Simply put, every Christian, listen, every Christian is called to be an apologist. So if you're here and you're a believer, then you need to be always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And there's no excuse to get out of that. You can't say, well, I'm too young and inexperienced, or I'm too old to do this. Or, you know, I just don't have enough intelligence, or I just don't have enough gifting, or I just don't have enough... You know what? If you're a Christian, if you have the hope of the gospel in your heart, you have enough to do this for the Lord. Every Christian bears the responsibility, and listen, the privilege. Think about what you have the privilege of speaking about. The Bible says, 
what we have as Christians in the gospel are things that angels long to look into. And we've got that. You've got everlasting, all-satisfying joy for eternity that you didn't do anything to deserve, that you did everything to forfeit. And you get that. You've got something that this world has no way to offer you. You have the privilege of telling other people why that's true. Why you're putting your hope in it. And you're offering to them the same thing that was at some point offered to you. Whether you were converted as an adult or a child, at some point, the gospel was brought to you and your questions were answered. And now you have the opportunity, the privilege, the responsibility to do the same for somebody else. That doesn't mean that we're going to be able to answer every question. If somebody comes and has a PhD in uh, quantum mechanics and they ask you a, a question that you don't even know what the words mean, that's not saying, oh, I failed to give a different... No, it's not what he's getting at here. But we do need to be willing to engage. And even if they use terms that you don't understand or things that you haven't really thought about before, you still are able to give good reasons for the hope that you have in the gospel. So how do we do it? Hopefully you feel and are excited about that opportunity to now go into your week upcoming ready to give a defense for the hope of the gospel. So how do you do it? Well, there's a a lot that we could say about the methodology the Bible gives us for how to do this. And I hope maybe at some point that we delve into those. Um, looking maybe next year we'll do a series on this, in Sunday school or maybe in the sermons, on how we uh, give a defense for the faith. But you don't have to have a course in apologetics to do this. Can I tell you that? That would be, be the first topic I would give for that sermon series. You don't have to have this sermon series uh, equipping you to do it. You already have it as a Christian. And now let me just show you that here, because... Peter gives two things in terms of method. And we can unpack those for years to come, but you can at least get this. Let's just stick to the text and let's see what Peter says. Two points Peter says about how to defend the faith. The end of verse 15 or the beginning of verse 16, depending on your translation. Always being prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that's in you, yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect or reverence. We're to make our defense with gentleness. This is the the first thing. That couplet is the first thing I want you to see. Gentleness is how we engage. That's referring to our gentleness toward those who ask us the questions. Even if their question's hostile or antagonistic, if they're just trying to show you to be foolish for what you believe, you still need to be gentle with these people. We're to be patient. Jude tells us to be merciful toward those who doubt. We're to be humble as we engage in these conversations. Gentleness is the mark of the right way of giving an apologetic. We've all been in that situation where you ask somebody a question and they kind of snap at you, you know? Either because they feel threatened by your question or because they feel that they just don't have the patience and time to explain again something that you're just not getting that they get. Or because they lack the compassion 
to take time to help somebody who doesn't get it? Is it too proud that they know it and that you should really be up to snuff where I am intellectually to know this? I don't want to have to go over it with you again. Maybe you've been on a job and had to be trained and you're just not quite getting it and the person's frustrated with you, you know? That's, that's not how we are to give an apologetic. Peter calls us to be gentle with our inquiry. We need to be, we need to remember that we had these questions and some of us still have these questions. We're not any better than them. We're not smarter than other people. What we know to be true is because we've received grace. So Peter's saying extend that grace to somebody else. And he says to do it with reverence. Literally fear. It's the same word that you see. Have no fear of them back in verse 14. Peter's kind of bookending this section. He begins, don't have fear of other people. And then he ends, you should have the right kind of fear. And I think he's talking about fear of God. Reverence and respect toward him. I don't don't think he's chiefly getting at respect or reverence for other people. I think he's chiefly talking about fear of the Lord. Don't fear men, but fear God. Have reverence and respect for him. Now, of course, that's going to entail that we have respect for the questioner, right? Because they're made in his image and God's told us to be respectful to other people. But here, Peter's kind of doing two things. He's saying, be gentle toward the questioners and have ultimate reverence for Jesus as you answer. So that's the the first thing. And then the second here, well, let me say one more thing about that reverence. Go back to verse the beginning of verse 15. Part of that reverence is what Peter begins with. It's the sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. Do you see that word honor or regard beginning of verse 15? Literally sanctify. And before we ever open our mouths to give a defense for the Lord Jesus, we've already set him apart as Lord in our hearts and lives. Every moment of every day, Jesus is Lord, and we intentionally set him apart as Lord. The things that we think and say and do and feel, he's king. So at the very center of this is the person and work of Jesus, which is why Jesus is the object. He is the object of our defense. We're not defending Simply a doctrine or a worldview, but a hope. He doesn't even use the word faith here. He says you defend the hope that you have in the gospel. And not some generic hope, but our own personal hope. We're defending what we are hoping in. We've got skin in this game. We are personally invested in this We're defending a hope. And don't misunderstand the meaning of hope there. It's not mere wishful thinking. Like, we tend to use the word hope. Like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow for the youth trip. Or I hope the Browns win more than one game this year. You know? That's not what the Bible means by hope. You can't make a reasoned defense for mere wishful thinking, can you? Biblical hope isn't tentative, it's certain. Hebrews 6.11 talks about the full assurance of hope. Peter mentions the word hope at the beginning of his book when he talks about the living hope that we have as Christians. It's a living hope because it's the living Lord Jesus that we're hoping in. 
Biblically, hope is a person. And our hope is certain because of the certainty of our risen Lord. Jesus is our hope. And friends, he is a hope worth defending. So where does this leave us as we transition to our study of ultimate questions? Let me just quickly give you four points of application and then we're done. Four things that I want to encourage you from this passage to do this week upcoming as we prepare for this series. Number one is pray. Okay, pray. Pray for the series. Pray for uh, the ministry that we're offering this fall and grief share. Pray for Ryan as he leads that and, and, and others. Pray for skeptics to come. This church welcomes doubters and skeptics. And pray that the Lord would use us to reach and to teach for Christ. Second, invite. You know, we've sent out literally thousands of those flyers that you got when you came in to the community, inviting folks to come. But let me ask you, what do you think is going to count more and be more effective? Uh, an impersonal flyer that somebody receives in a mailbox or a personal invitation from a friend like you? Now, we hope that both will be used of the Lord. But your own personal invitation to another person, just think about this for a second. You may have somebody that you know is not a Christian that you've kind of lived life alongside of for years and never once have you invited them to come and join you at church. And maybe the reason that they've never come is because they've never been invited. You'd hate, you'd hate to look back on that years from now and see all of that time you wasted not inviting that person to connect. So use Use your friendships. Use your good neighborly relationships to invite. Third, learn. This series is not just for skeptics. It's for us as Christians. So use this opportunity to learn how to think deeper about these big questions. Learn how to answer them. Right? You already know the answer to these questions. You can already give an apologetic for them. But go deeper in your ability to do so and to, to better articulate it, to be more persuasive as you go. Making disciples as a church is not simply a come and see thing. It's a go and tell thing as well. Right? We don't make disciples just by having them come in the doors of this church. You are sent out to go into your mission field and to have these conversations and share the gospel. You can share the gospel of Jesus just as well as I can. So go do it. And then last... Hope. It's a command to hope. Okay? I realize that there are numerous barriers to doing what I've just said, what Peter has just said, what God is saying that you need to do. There's probably the biggest one is fear, right? There's a lot of fear that wells up as you, as you, you see that opportunity coming up to share the gospel with somebody. Maybe your throat begins to swell, your mouth gets dry. Palms begin to sweat a little bit. Just to say something about the Lord to another person. I, I get that. I'm a pastor and I get that. I understand that there's fear. Social fear of talking to somebody about Jesus. Because in our culture that's taboo. We don't talk about politics or religion. Fear of how that person might respond. Fear that they may ask you something you don't know the answer to and you look foolish. There's a lot of reasons that we fear. But just remember... Peter realized that too. Remember how he begins 
In verse 14, the word but in verse 15, but in your heart set Christ apart as Lord. Okay? The word but is over against what he just said in verse 14. What did he say in verse 14? He said, don't fear. Don't have fear of human beings for any reason, whether they're physically persecuting you or whether it's just, oh, they may say something I don't know the answer to, or I may sound goofy, or I may, you know, lose that, whatever. Don't fear them, but honor Christ as Lord. The antithesis of fear is hope in God. Now let me tell you something. The more you hope in Christ, the more that will conquer fear in your life of any kind, but especially in this area. So take time to cultivate a deeper hope in Jesus. As you think about the gospel, as you think about verse 18, how Jesus gave his life for you on the cross and took it up again in the resurrection so that you could come to God and enjoy Him for eternity? Cultivate your hope and your joy in Christ. And I guarantee you, if you treasure Him, and if you are intentional about thinking about Him, setting Christ apart as Lord, and everything you think and do and say throughout the day, I'll tell you what, if you are treasuring Him, it will not be hard to share Him. When you take pictures of your kids, it's not hard to hit the share button on your phone. But you treasure it. How much more valuable is Jesus than any of those things? So pray for it. Take the opportunity to invite. Use this opportunity to learn and cultivate a deeper hope in the gospel. Because, beloved, that hope is worth defending. Let's pray. So Jesus, we come to you, our hope, and we ask that you would help us in this responsibility and in this privilege to take the gospel and to give good reasons for it, to treasure you and how we speak of you and defend your truth and your hope to those who don't have it. And we ask it in your name. Amen.